encourage you to keep numbers 11 open. We'll turn there in a second. In this season, and I'm always just doing a little review at the very beginning, through at least the end of the summer, we're looking at this theme of the wilderness, which um, if you're new here, you don't have it. We have these purple bookmarks in the back. Grab one of these afterwards that my wife Helen made and designed. Has all the major passages that we're looking at. You can see the numbers passage is on here. And, uh, and encourage you to be spending a lot of time in these passages in your own life in these uh, in these months. The, the three things that I want you to be thinking about when it comes to the wilderness, and I'm saying this almost every week, is that first, the wilderness is neither all bad or all good. It's mixed. It's got a dualism to it. It's both the place of God's grace and of danger. And therefore, the wilderness is an ambiguous place. It's not bad entirely like slavery in Egypt, but it's not all good like life in the promised land is. It's this in-between experience where there's both grace and danger. And the logic of this sermon series right now is every week I'm alternating between grace and danger. Last week was a grace message. Today's danger again. And we're just going to keep doing that in the weeks to come. So next week we'll do grace again, but today's danger. The second thing is that the wilderness is not a metaphor for a particularly hard season of your life. Like, oh, I'm in a really dry wilderness season right now. It is every moment of your entire life as a Christian. The best seasons of your life, the worst seasons of your life, and everything in between take place in the wilderness. Nothing takes place as a slave in Egypt anymore. Even in your worst moments where you just, you're living like a slave, you're not actually a slave anymore as a Christian. Even in your best moments, you're like, I'm so glad to be alive. The world is so beautiful. You are not in the promised land. And it's a huge wake-up call to think that you are. And the third thing is that the wilderness becomes kind of a mirror or a lens through which we can look at so many other parts of the Christian life, whether danger, whether grace, whether the sacraments, whatever, and we'll do that. For instance, today we'll think a little about both one of those themes we do not like to think about or talk about in our culture today, the judgment of God, which is all over that Numbers 11 passage, as well as God's providence, how God provides for his people. We'll talk a little about that. Two weeks ago when I started the the danger emphasis in this series all I did for the entire sermon was try to convince you that there is danger in the wilderness that there is danger in the Christian life because there is such a culture of cheap grace in western Christianity that even convincing Christians that something bad could happen in a cause and effect kind of way I turn away from God and trust and faith and obedience and then disaster comes is something that that often offends Christians like you're denying the grace of God to say that I have any responsibility for what I do and what happens to me what the grace of God means is that Jesus did something for me so that I don't ever have to do anything again and I can just always feel good there's no negative feelings in the christian life and that's that's not true what i want to do today is actually begin to enunciate and articulate a little what the danger in the wilderness is if you remember is maybe three weeks ago or so i argued that the grace of god in the wilderness comes to us in three overall forms it comes to us in the form of god's provision for our needs not our desires even in the wilderness, even with God's faithfulness, not every desire we have gets met. We often have hungry stomachs. We often feel cranky because we're not getting what we want. And that's not because you have a lack of faith. No matter what, there are desires that will not be met in the wilderness, but we do get everything we need and God provides for that. The second form of God's grace is communion with God. We're not like, you know, God doesn't redeem 
Israel from Egypt and then wave at them and say, I'm waiting for you in the promised land. See when you get there, he goes with them and through the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud and fire, they get to have fellowship and communion with God all along the way that God is with us in the wilderness. Whereas if you ever go back and you read the beginning of Exodus and, and talking about the presence and the absence of God is a complicated thing in scripture and in life, but you get overall the emphasis you get at the beginning of Exodus is that God has basically been absent from their experience for four 400 years, and they're crying out to a God that they have not experienced for 400 years. In the promised land, we see God face to face. Here, we don't see God face to face, but he is with us in a way that he was not when we were slaves in Egypt. And then third and finally, and this is the, the aspect of grace that is most counterintuitive to us, because we like to interpret grace as, I have all these desires, and if God meets them, then he's being gracious. And if he doesn't, then I doubt him. But part of God's grace in the wilderness is formation that God changes his people, that, that part of, to, to quote my wife, Helen, she has this great phrase for this, is that we usually just want to get to the promised land. God's highest agenda is to make us into a people fit for the promised land while we're still in the wilderness, that we would become a promised land people, whereas for us, it's kind of okay to just stay how we are, but to just get to the promised land, or to put it another way, that Israel is now out of Egypt but Egypt is not out of Israel yet. And so in the wilderness, God is forming and shaping and testing and educating his people. And that theme will come up today. What I want to do for the next, what will be about five or six weeks, not every week, but every other week when we talk about danger, I want to argue that there are also three primary forms of danger in the wilderness that kind of parallel these three forms of grace. If grace comes to us in the form of provision, in communion and formation, and many of you will be familiar with these categories. Christians have been using them for a long time, and I think they're really helpful. The three main forms of danger in the wilderness are the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, the world, and the devil. You see all three in Psalm 106. You see all three when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he's hungry, and his desires are crying out, and Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world. You see world, flesh, devil with Jesus in the wilderness, and often in scripture, these are the three main forms, Ephesians 2, 1 John 2, many other passages we could look at where these are identified as if disaster comes into your life, as someone who's already been redeemed, it will come from one of these three sources. Either the world will seduce you away from God's purposes, or Satan will tempt you away from obedience to God, or your own desires will cause shipwreck to what God is doing in your life. Today, we're going to look at the desires of the flesh. And I wanted to start here for one main reason. On the one hand, all three of these are dangerous enemies to the Christian <clears throat> in life, in the wilderness, and all three of them are interconnected. You never experience Satan directly, at least most of us don't. You experience him through the way he works in the world or the way he appeals in temptation to your desires. You never experience the world as anything other than something that appeals and allures to your desires or as something that, that is kind of the haven of demonic activity, of darkness in the world. And, and so all of them are there, all of them are dangerous, but I want to start today by making this argument between the flesh, the world, and the devil, the flesh is far and away the most dangerous of the three. Satan has no potential in your life to harm you. The world has no ability to do anything to you except insofar as the desires of your flesh give them access. There is no direct access. The world 
or Satan has to your harm only indirectly through getting you to accede to something that is wrong through the desires of the flesh. And so ultimately, this is one of the reasons that when I see Christians, and it happens all the time in our culture and other cultures, liberal Christians, conservative Christians, politically all over the map, when Christians either put all of their energy into panicking and complaining over what's happening politically in the world, or begin to just get almost superstitious of trying to identify the demons that are haunting them, that something has gone wrong. Because nothing can ultimately harm us as the people of God, except what we give access to through the desires of our flesh. That is the greatest danger, the greatest enemy we have as the people of God. The flesh, and specifically its desires, its passions, its cravings, to use this biblical language. Let me, uh, let me open with this before we look at Numbers 11 and look at this in Israel's story. I'm often struck when I read the Gospels how often when somebody comes up to Jesus and clearly there's a question they have, clearly they hope that he will do something, and his opening question to them so often is, what do you want? And it's interesting, when we get together, like, like you might meet some people today afterwards in fellowship for the first time, and what are you going to ask each other? Like, where are you from? What do you do for work? You know, like, what do you like to do in your free time? And that's all really interesting. But imagine if we regularly ask each other, what do you desire? What do you want? What are you hoping next week looks like? What are the, what are the really big things you want in your life? There is automatically a sense of, whoa, that, that's almost inappropriate to ask that. Or I feel incredibly vulnerable asking that or being asked that. And also, I think at the same time of a, we can't really know each other unless we know the answer to that question in each other's lives. What do you want? It is very, very central to who we are. And it's also true that some of the most revealing moments in any person's life are precisely what happens next when you don't get what you want. When you are getting what you want, I know almost nothing about you. When you do not get what you want, we begin to learn a lot about ourselves and about one another. And so what do you want is a question we should regularly be asking ourselves. And again, I'm, I'm kind of trying to have the balance here. On the one hand, I do, clearly, as a Christian, as a pastor, I do not want you to follow our culture on this and say, what do I want? I want this, I want this, I want this, and then just follow that as the strategy for your life, because it ends by being buried in that place where the people had the craving are. On the other hand, I do not want you to demonize that question. I don't want you to say, what do I want? Oh, it's just all awfulness and, and I just hate it. I'm going to repress it. I'm going to suppress it. That's also not the answer. There, there's something important and good about what we want, but there's also something dangerous about what we want. And so in Numbers 11, if you're looking at it, let's just do a quick recap of Israel's history in the wilderness here. You see it primarily in two places. This is a scene in Numbers 11, and you might remember this, or you might be reading this on your own. For 40 years, Israel's in the wilderness. The wilderness really starts in Exodus 15, and it only goes for three months until Exodus 18, and then Israel spends about a year at Mount Sinai, which is all of Exodus 19 through the end of Exodus, which is Exodus 40, all of Leviticus and then the first 10 chapters of Numbers that are just sitting and camped around Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And in Numbers 11 to the end of Deuteronomy is 38 years plus in the wilderness. And one of the really interesting things is how the three months in the wilderness before they get to Sinai and the 38 years in the wilderness after Sinai are told as if they're almost parallel stories. 
There is one story of Israel asking for quail on both sides of Sinai. There are two stories of water coming from the rock on both sides. There is a story of manna coming from heaven in both sides. And what's interesting is Numbers 11 is the second place after Exodus 16 where Israel has asked for meat, quail, because they're tired of eating manna every day. They're tired of eating manna every day. And two places in Numbers 11, look at this with me. In verse four, we're told, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. This word craving really captured the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers with the wilderness generation. They have a craving, a strong desire, a strong passion. You all know exactly what that feels like. You all know what that feels like with food. You all know what that feels like with drink. You know what that feels like with sex. You know what that feels like with, with loneliness and wanting to be around people. You know what that feels like when you're feeling depressed and you long to experience something joyful in life, to have a craving for something you're not experiencing right now. And then at the end of the chapter, and, and maybe you notice that Israel, the people of God, they're almost described indirectly as spoiled children in this chapter. They're, they're eating manna every day. Nobody's in danger of starving. And they start weeping. They're like, oh, more manna. Is this all we have? And then it's interesting. We'll come back to this later in the series. Is one of the things the desires of the flesh do, one of, not the only, but one of the really dangerous things it does is it changes the way you remember the past. It changes the way you remember the past. They have this craving and they go, remember how amazing it was when we were slaves in Egypt? Cucumbers melons, garlic. It's like, I, I do remember being a slave. I do not remember it being amazing, even though there was garlic and melon and cucumbers and there's not right now. But all of a sudden there's this sense of it changes the way you remember the past. It also changes the way you imagine the future. We'll look at that one later on. But Israel's memory of the past in Israel's imagination of the future is regularly hijacked by the desires of the flesh in the present. When you are in the throes of desiring things that you don't have, and not just desiring them, but they become the central preoccupying reality in your life, it distorts your memory of the past and your imagination of the future the way that you begin hallucinating and seeing mirages in the desert. You begin seeing things that are not there, and Israel begins to look back, and they're seeing a mirage of what slavery in Egypt actually was. And then at the end, in verse 34, and Moses basically says, like, these children, did I give birth to them? I can't carry them. God, you take care of them. That, that they're basically like spoiled children. That's what we become when the desires of our flesh become the central reality. Children are great for a lot of things in life. One of the great things about children is they are so unambiguous about what they're doing, whereas we hide stuff as adults. Have you ever seen a kid that really wants something and isn't getting it? Like just a hissy fit until it happens. And that's, there's, there's an aspect of that in every one of our lives, apart from the grace of God. That's what Israel does here. And then the story ends. They get this quail, but it turns into disaster and it becomes a form of God's judgment, a plague, a disease. And it says in verse 34, therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. Not just who had the craving, but who indulged it, who, who just let it determine everything else. Keep your finger there or, or even just, you know, kind of turn away from it. But let's jump ahead to the Psalms. Go to Psalm 78. We didn't read this out loud, but we've been reading some of these throughout this series. There are a number of Psalms, Psalm 78 is where we're going to go now, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, that are all about learning from what Israel experienced during the wilderness. And in Psalm 78, 
Let's start in verse 17. Yet they, the generation that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. How? Well, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. That is clearly an allusion to Numbers chapter 11. Psalm 78 is encouraging us to remember the story in Numbers 11. They spoke against God saying, is God able to spread a table in the wilderness? Yeah, he struck the, the rocks so the water gushed out and streams overflowed. But can he also get bread and provide meat for his people? And they ate, and then jumping down to verse 29, and they ate and they were well filled for he gave them what they craved. And yet before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and he laid low the young men of Israel, craving desire that ends in disaster and is somehow attributed to the judgment of God, which we'll look at in a second. Psalm 106, jump ahead to that with me real quick. Psalm 106, just a little farther along. If you remember Psalm 105 and 106, both largely about the wilderness, Psalm 105 is positive focused on God's faithfulness to Israel. Psalm 106 negative, focused on Israel's unfaithfulness to God during the wilderness. Psalm 106, just verses 14 and 15. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Another allusion to Numbers 11. And they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, and yet he sent a wasting disease among them. They got exactly what they wanted. And it ended in tragedy and it ended in disaster. Again, let's think about if we got what we wanted, we tend to think then everything would be good. I would just be in this perpetual state of happiness and gratitude and thankfulness for the rest of my life. But it actually would end in disaster for us and for others in a million obvious ways. And some of you already know that because some of you more than others in this room, if we could kind of all ask each other the question, what do you want? We got really real and really intimate with each other. Some of you have gotten more of what you wanted than other people in this room. Those of you who've gotten more of what you wanted, you know very, very well that it was not what you thought it was going to be. And that you are not experiencing the world the way you thought you would experience the world if you got what you wanted. Last passage, 1 Corinthians 10, which we looked at at the beginning, and uh, Andy read out for us. We need to notice something about 1 Corinthians 10, which this is now maybe the fourth time we've read this passage. It's one of our central wilderness passages. Paul talks about his own attitude of self-discipline, self-denial, running the race up before him because... I remember this story, chapter 10, verse 1, of Israel in the wilderness, a people who had all the same grace we do and yet fell in the wilderness. And I want you to notice that verse 6 says this. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You read the wilderness stories in Numbers and in Exodus. You read them in Psalms. read them here. And Paul says, all of that was written down so that we might not desire evil as they did. And I want you to notice that then he goes on in verses 7 through 11 or so, and he recaps a number of stories where Israel committed idolatry or sexual immorality or tested God and disaster happened. What I want you to notice is that verse 6 is not the first in a sequence of stories, but it's the summary of all the other stories. When Israel committed idolatry, and this happened, disaster, when they committed sexual immorality, and this judgment happened, when they tested God in the wilderness, when they grumbled in the wilderness, bad stuff, bad stuff, bad stuff happened, Paul summarizes that by, they desired evil. And these things were written down for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. That's not the first in the sequence. That's the summary of what went wrong with the wilderness generation. They desired evil. And finally, turn back to Psalm 106. I just want you to notice something real quick, and then I'm going to move on to kind of what we do with this, what this means practically. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this, uh, this dynamic in Psalm 106 and Psalm 105. Turn to Psalm 106 to begin with. Actually, turn to the first one, Psalm 105. Psalm 105 says this, starting in verse 39, and it's clearly about the wilderness. God spread a cloud for a covering, and he gave fire to give light to them by night. There's the pillar of cloud and fire. They asked, and he brought forth quail, and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. I just want you to notice there that the story of Israel asking for quail and God giving it to them is remembered here as a moment of God's faithfulness. Now turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, which we already read this, but verses 13 through 15, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanting craving in the wilderness. They put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but it turned into a wasting disease among them. That's referring to the same moment and looking at it from two different angles. God, on the one hand, gave them what they asked. There's his goodness and his faithfulness. On the other hand, it turned into a disease and a plague, and many of them ended up buried in that place. It's two ways to look at that same moment. It's complicated. Let me do this real quick, and then we'll move on to to some of the practical stuff here. I will come back to this in this series because I think this is such an important one in our cultural moment, both because there is probably nothing that our culture, even Christians in our culture, resist more than the idea that God judges sin and brings disaster upon those who turn away from him in rebellion. Even among Christians, there is a great desire to to try to explain everything by God is good, God is loving, and all the negative stuff, God has nothing to do with that. And yet, if you have ever spent five minutes reading the Bible, you cannot read the Bible for very long without seeing God's judgment as a major theme in it. And on the other hand, I think that among those of us who are Christians, there's often a profound confusion of, I want to trust what scripture says. I want to take it seriously, but I cannot grapple with, I cannot connect the dots to how God can be good and he can be loving. And yet there's this other dimension too. And so we will do a whole sermon series on that, not a sermon series, but a whole sermon on that later on in this series of thinking about God's judgment and how it connects to his goodness, to his love. But for now, I want you to notice something, or at least consider something both about God's judgment negatively when we turn away from him and then disaster strikes in our lives and positively his providence, that he provides for his people, I suspect that even if you haven't articulated it this way to yourself, that one of the reasons Israel's 40 years in the wilderness doesn't feel all that relevant to you, at least before the sermon series, is that so much miraculous stuff happens in it, and we just kind of know that that's not what life is like today. It's like man is coming from heaven, water's coming out of the rock, Like this is just like you know, like, like the, the uh, God out of the machine, kind of like, you know, just, just bizarre rescue in a story. That's not what life is like. Here's something that I want you to know. Maybe a few of you know this, that 
the manna that comes from heaven is not supernatural in the way that we think today. Let, let me give you an illustration. When we read of manna coming from heaven and water coming out of the rock, here's what we're not supposed to hear, that all of a sudden they were walking through the wilderness and they just stumbled upon a snow cone maker. And they were like, I would like some coconut. I would like some rainbow snow cones. And you're like, well, there aren't snow cones in the wilderness. And so clearly that's just a miracle where God kind of intervened and did it. In the wilderness, between Sinai and the promised land, there is this dewy substance that is there to this day that the local inhabitants, the local nomadic tribes, still call manhu. It is not something that intervenes from the outside, and there is water around rocks in the wilderness. These are things that God leads them to that he provides, but it happens through creation. When God provides for people, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we don't raise our heads up and wait for it to hit us in the head, right? Like it comes indirectly through creation and its processes. Israel went into the wilderness and three days in, they're like, we're going to starve to death and we're going to thirst to death because there is no food here and there's no water here. And yet God led them to where creation itself was able to provide for them. It's, it is miraculous in the sense that it's God's grace and they would not have discovered it themselves, but it's not an intervention from the outside of something that's not already there. And in the same way, maybe more significantly, this is also true for God's judgment. God's judgment is not a piano falling on your head or a bolt of lightning coming out of the sky when you've lied, there is 99.9% .9 of the time a cause and effect relationship between what you are doing and the way the world naturally operates. They're tired of eating manna every day. God gives them quail and they start stuffing themselves. What happens to people who do that? Disease, plague, that's the judgment that comes. That is a very natural after effect of a people that are hungry, that are selfish, that are self-centered and they stuff themselves. Take your sexual desires right now, whatever they are, go do them every time you desire them consistently. And what is the after effect of that in this world? Disaster. And yet scripture sees that as the judgment of God, which itself is not there to destroy us, but to turn us back to him. Both God's providence and his judgment operate through the created order. When you lie constantly, all of your relationships around you will begin to fall apart, and that itself will be the judgment of God against you. When you just stuff your face with whatever your body wants, and you're not denying yourself anything, you're not moderate, you're not disciplined, you will experience physical ruin, and it will be the judgment of God manifested in your life. These things are not add-ons from the outside. They are reminders that God is sovereign over the created order. And so both in judgment and in God's providence, God works through the created order. And there's a responsibility there for us to ask for what we need, but also to say no to things that we desire that are out of step with his purposes. And so I'm already a little farther along than I wanted to be in terms of time here. So I'm not going to do this, but maybe I'll send this around later on, print it out for next week. I would encourage you, what I have before me, and I don't have time to do it, is a whole list of passages in scripture that warn us against doing what we desire, against words like, and one thing you might do this week is look up on, say, a Bible website, words like passions, desires, craving, lusts and see how scripture talks about them. It talks about them with a kind of urgency 
that is difficult for modern Western Americans to take seriously. So much of our worldview and our culture is precisely that our desires and whether they are satisfied or not is the key to whether your story is a comedy or a tragedy. And here is scripture, not entirely, but overwhelmingly warning us against what we desire. Let me just share two that are basically the same, and then we'll move on. In Jude and in Second Peter in the New Testament, they're kind of echoing each other. We're warned against people who, here's the line, follow their own fleshly desires. And there's a literal picture there that's also metaphorical, which is these are people who live their lives by waiting to see what desires rise up in their lives, and then they just follow them. And Jude and Peter say, avoid such people. Avoid such people. Do not be such people. And I think that's the picture of the good life for a modern American. Wait to see what pops up and follow it and hope you get it. And Jude and First Peter describe that as the essence of wickedness and foolishness. And so the desires of the flesh are a profound danger to us. So here, as we come to a a close, just want to do a couple of things practically. First, let's define what flesh is because there's a lot of confusion here. Two things I want to say. First, flesh is not your sinful nature. Even though the NIV sometimes translates it that way in Romans and Galatians, it's not your sinful nature. In fact, it's not something bad in and of itself. We heard in the Heidelberg Catechism, your flesh basically is, and here's, here's the second thing. It's not, it's not a euphemism for sexual desire. When we are warned against fleshly desires, not only is sex not the only thing there, it's not even the main thing there. And it's not even just sex and food and drugs and rock and roll. If you are lonely and you long to be more intimately connected to other people, that is a desire of the flesh. It's not bad. Desire for sex, not bad. Desire for food, not bad. But it is an aspect of your creatureliness that is there and, and the thing that's dangerous about the flesh, and there's a great Calvin quote at the beginning of Bolton, is not that it's a natural desire, but that it is an inordinate desire. That is, the problem is not that you are desiring, and the problem is not what you are desiring. The problem is how you are desiring it. Too much, too little. Too soon, too late. Not in the proper context or too much compared to other desires. That is what is, and so when scripture talks about our flesh, here is basically what it's referring to, to, the totality of you in your embodiment. When it refers to flesh, it really is talking about your body, which is good, which is created by God, but which is constantly sending a million desires to the surface. And here is, above all else, the two characteristics that are ascribed to the flesh in scripture. Not that it's sinful, not it's evil, but two things. One is that it's weak. It's really, really hard to say no to what your flesh desires. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I wanted to do this, but I had this desire to go to sleep, or to eat, or to do this, and it just hijacked everything else. And the second thing that follows from that, and and I encourage you to to think through what this looks like in your life, because there's parallels and similarities for all of us, but it's also a bit different for each of us. Whatever your body, your flesh desires in a fallen world screams out to you implicitly with the urgency of the glory of God. And, And what I mean by that is notice what happens when you're really hungry later today or when you're really tired at work tomorrow, or when you're feeling really lonely or sad because of what's happened, it's one thing to experience those things, and none of those things are bad to experience. 
it's another thing to listen for the centrality, the importance, the priority that your body screams out to you that when I am hungry, there's injustice happening there in the world. Other people around me need this. And my body screams out to me, Nick, nothing is more important right now than me eating. And I begin to relate to reality, other people and God, as you're now in second place until I take care of this. And there is a self-centeredness to the flesh. To put it this way, your flesh is the part of you that is profoundly narcissistic. That says, what I want is the center of the universe and everything else takes a backseat to that. That dynamic in each of our lives is profoundly dangerous where the gap between desire and experience are. And so our flesh is the totality of our embodiment in the world. And in Galatians and in Romans, Paul actually uses a military word, a technical word to describe the flesh as the point of critical conflict, specifically a kind of a beachhead that is the place where if someone wants to land to bring disaster to invade, this is the most strategic place to land in your life. This is where the troops of D-Day landed on Normandy Beach. This is the best place to gain access to sin in your life. My body wants this. And again, don't hear there, sex, food, although that's part of it. Here also, anytime there's a desire you have for something that makes you profoundly vulnerable to becoming an agent or at least complicit with evil in your life because of what you're willing to do. Now, again, as I come to an end, it's really easy to hear all of this. And maybe some of you are hearing it, which is this just sounds like what I desire is bad. This just sounds like the Christian life is doing the opposite of what you desire. And so I want to distinguish three approaches to the body. And I want to use C.S. Lewis here. C.S. Lewis says in his four loves, human beings throughout history have held three views of their bodies. First, there is the view of those aesthetic pagans who called it the prison or the tomb of the soul. That's a clear allusion to Plato and others like him. And of Christians later on, like Fisher, to whom it was a sack of dung, food for worms, filthy, shameful, and a source of nothing but temptation to bad people and humiliation to good ones. And we're like, yeah, it's kind of the, the impression I got from you today, Nick. Um, it's just, just this thing to kind of like rue the fact that you even have it. Like, oh, I can't wait to be free of this flesh with his desires. Then second, there are the neo-pagans, and this is clearly the view on the street today, the nudists, the sufferers from dark gods, to whom the body is glorious. That is, if the first view sees desire as something to be eradicated, the second view sees desire as something to be exalted. The third view is, C.S. Lewis says, the view we have from St. Francis expressed, and I love this, this is really worth remembering, expressed by calling his own body brother ass. St. Francis called his own body brother ass. All three may be, I am not sure, defensible, but give me St. Francis for my money. Ass is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, deserving now a stick and then a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful, so also your body. That is, do not glorify it. Do not demonize it. A better attitude is what Paul does at the end of 1 Corinthians 9. I keep it submitted to a greater purpose so that it does what I want rather than me doing what it wants. Do you do what your body wants or does your body do what you want? Is the question that I think these scriptures put before us. And so if on the one hand, 
This is not, even though it might sound like it, the eradication of desire. Do what you're supposed to do rather than what you desire. Just stuff your desires down. It is also clearly not the exaltation of desire. So what is it? And here's, I think, what is going on in the wilderness, that we are not to eradicate our desires. We're not to exalt them. This is about the education of desire. In Deuteronomy 8, Paul, oh, sorry, um, through Moses, God sums up 40 years in the wilderness by saying, I led you 40 years from the wilderness. I gave you what you needed, not what you desired. You had manna, you had water. You were regularly hungry. You were regularly cranky. And I did all of it so that you might learn that human beings do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is the wilderness was 40 years of school for the re-education of human desire. So you experience a desire, you're lonely, you want this, you're hungry, you want this, you're cranky, you want that. Don't eradicate it, but also don't exalt it. The point is educate it through the spirit and bring it into line with the purposes that God has redeemed you for. Put to death all that goes in the wrong direction, encourage the desires of the spirit and live them out even more. This is central. And so a couple of just kind of practical things. What do we do with this? Um, one thing is this, a, a way of thinking about your life and thinking about yourself. I suspect that when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it's difficult to hear the way we're supposed to, the distinction in the Psalms and Proverbs and wisdom literature between the righteous and the wicked, right? Because you know human beings well enough to like, I'm not going to call anybody righteous. Nobody is righteous. And on the other hand, like nobody's really wicked, right? Like we're all just kind of like gray right? Like there's no good guys. There's no real bad guys in life. And so calling anybody righteous, anybody wicked, like maybe there's the Nazis over here and maybe there's mother Teresa over there, but like 99% of us were not righteous or wicked because we have such extreme caricatures of what both these words mean in Hebrew and in the biblical languages, righteous and wicked are both words to describe a person's relationship and response to covenant with God. That is somebody who's righteous is still sinful. They still screw up all the time. They're still weak but they are committed to keeping covenant with God and covenant with other people. And the wicked break covenant with God and break covenant with other people for one reason and one reason alone, their desires are going another direction. And so here is my very simple summary of the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Someone who is wicked is someone who treats their desires as the ultimate authority in the universe. Authoritative over God, authoritative over the well-being of other people. Psalm 10 says the wicked praises. It uses a worship verb. It says the wicked praises the desires of his soul, puts his desires in the place that only the creator and redeemer of the universe ought to be. The righteous are not those who eradicate their desires. They are not those who diminish or suppress their desires. They are those who desire above all else the authority of God in their lives and in the life of the world. They desire God's kingdom to come. They desire God's name to be hallowed. They desire other human beings to flourish because of God's grace. And they subordinate every desire that is not in line with that. Both the wicked and the righteous regularly have to say no to certain desires. They have criteria for filtering them, but they are profoundly different criteria. And so as we end, right, this is our prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I actively encourage you to not just pay attention to what you desire, Pay attention to how you respond to it. And here's something that we probably don't hear enough in church circles today. I encourage you to actively not ask God for a lot that you desire. 
and instead to ask for your daily bread. To be a person for whom enough is enough and to keep your desires second under the purposes of God and the well-being of other people. To use a phrase that Paul uses in Philippians 3 for people who have fallen away from the faith, do not let your belly be your God. Do not let what you desire be what sets the agenda in your life. And so instead, and next week we'll do grace, just so you know, um, we will get back to that. And next week we'll talk about the role of feasting, the role of celebrating, the role of enjoying. But for now, I want to say you cannot wander through the wilderness faithfully unless you practice fasting on a regular basis. Very few Christians practice fasting today. And primarily because we are so committed to experiencing what we want on a daily basis. And God only is a means to an end to that. Fasting does not mean I'm going to get off social media for a week. You probably should. Fasting literally means I'm going to say no to things my body wants explicitly, which is why fasting has to include food and drink. What that looks like for each of you, we can talk about in the future. There's no one size fits all. But I would say if you are, if you do not have a regular rhythm in your life where you see what your body produces and you actively look in the face and say, no, you are headed for disaster in the wilderness. Saying no to what you desire is one of the most important skills in the Christian life. It is not the most important, but it is absolutely paramount that we are able to do that. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we confess every week right now that we belong to Jesus, not just in soul, but in body. First Corinthians 6, glorify your God, glorify God with your body. As we um, go into the Lord's table and we experience not everything we desire, but what we need someday. And, and even for those of you who know me for a long time, you probably haven't heard me say this, but I, I can just tell you that to Helen, to, to other people in my life, really close friends, my own age, old, old colleagues, like I've said this a lot over the last 15 years. I've never done it yet, but someday I'm going to preach an entire sermon on one verse. And I want to leave this verse with you at the end, which is Psalm 37, verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I'm going to say three things about that verse someday when I preach a sermon. on. One is that that is an amazing promise that we should take way more seriously. But two, it does not mean what you think it means. And three, it is one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. It does not say, here are the desires of my heart. I will delight myself in the Lord, and I will get them. It says, delight yourself in the Lord unconditionally, and the result will be you will be satisfied but it makes no other promises than that. And in these 40 years in the wilderness, so much of the Christian life is about the re-education of human desire, not its eradication, not its exaltation. And so just a really simple question to, to leave you with, do you recognize this dynamic in your life? That if you go wrong, if, if, if your story ends in tragedy, this will be central to why it goes that way. And what are you doing about it? What guards do you have up against this enemy? What, what strategies do you have against this danger? Or are you, like in Jude and Peter, someone who is just following the desires of their flesh wherever they go? Which is a good American thing to do, but a really bad Christian thing to do. And so put to death the desire of the body, of the flesh, and follow the leading of the spirit, which is towards love, towards unselfishness, towards the glory of God. Let's be on our vigilance against this enemy. Let me pray.